LeBron James, I promise school is having some trouble. Chicago is also having some trouble with its community schools program. These things have something in common, and we're going to talk about it on today's Citizen Stewart Show. Welcome to the Citizen Stewart Show, a podcast about education in America, where we dive deep into the top headlines and add new perspectives about our schools and our democracy. I'm your host, Chris Citizen Stewart, Chief Influencer at EdPost, a media platform focusing on educational opportunity and justice for every child. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Ravi Gupta, a former Obama staffer and former superintendent of a network of charter schools in the South. And Ravi, you took over from me last week. I appreciate that so much. How did it go? It went well. You know, I think I've met and interviewed now through the branch every education secretary of my adult lifetime except for Betsy DeVos. So DeVos, if you're listening, you got to come on the branch at some point. (laughs) Well, for our listeners, you may know this already if you listen to the show every week that our guest last week was former Secretary of Education, Margaret Spellings, who has a lot to say about accountability. She's one of the last, I think, kind of true blue old school fighters for accountability assessments and data usage within education. So it was really great to have her on the show because we talk so often about opinions and politics and, you know, the the outliers of education. And really, honestly, I want to keep hammering the message home that education is really about teaching, learning, data, assessment, and outcomes. Really, that's like, you know, we, we can simplify it. If those things aren't there, and we're going to talk about that in today's show, you can have everything else in the whole world. You can give kids free meals. You could give kids ponies. You could give them tickets to SeaWorld. But if you don't have teaching, learning, data, instruction, assessment, and outcomes in mind, then we're going to talk about it today. Then everything else falls away. But let's do our lightning round. Our lightning round brings you rapid fire updates on key education stories. And first up, a new poll reveals a shift in trust on education among voters in battlefield or battleground states. Democrats who once held a double digit lead are now trailing behind Republicans by three percentage points in Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, and North Carolina, very important states. For more details of this, you can check out in our show notes. We'll have the the article, but Ravi, what do you think about this? Well, I, you know, we've talked about this for a while. I wrote about this a couple months ago where I thought that Democrats were vulnerable on education issues. And that's where I talked about the take back control message. You know, my first read on this is that something's moving it clearly. Like there's, there's some kind of movement happening in this data and it's hard through the cross tabs. I was looking at this. I, I have to request like the more detailed cross tabs, but when I click through the link and I'm looking at this data, it's, it's fascinating on a number of accounts, one being the relative split among Democrats, independents, Republicans, et cetera, on issues of choice. Whereas you see a higher percentage of independents than Democrats who support more aggressive forms of choice like vouchers and ESAs, that could be part of it. But all this stuff, I think, has less to do with substance than it has to do with messaging. And I think the pandemic learning loss and the messaging around it, plus the rise of this sort of take back control message on schools, I think is clear, as we've talked about before, whether you think it's effective or not. In terms, or whether you think it's like true or not, versus like the Democrats' message, I think is a bit muddled right now around what they're looking to do for schools. I mean, this is probably related to a couple of the segments we have today, but I think it's, I think it's muddled, and muddled doesn't necessarily mean not effective. Like for instance, Bidenomics, I think is is muddled in terms of an economic message. I think it's probably pretty effective. So to be clear, I don't, I don't think the two are, are the same, like effective messaging and effective policy are not the same thing. I don't know. I'm sounding muddled now. Chris, what do you think? <laughs> well, I will say this much. I hope that anybody in the Democratic Party will convince people to stop saying Bidenomics. <laughs> Just don't say this. What would you call it though? He needs something to, to roll, roll up all these things. Uh, you know... Yeah, no, I maybe, maybe perhaps, but please just don't say Bidenomics. It's like it, you know, it's America's budget and, you know, he promised not to be a a crazy partisan. It's not about him. It's not ego based or whatnot. It's all of our economy, even for the people that hate Biden. And it's just such a clunky 
weird word that doesn't seem to be working a little bit like their education message doesn't seem to be working. <laughs> yes. Yeah. How would you summarize the Democrats position on education right now? More money, less accountability. Yeah. And the, the Republicans is, is more choice, no accountability. Less money. <laughs> less money. Yeah. Less money, less money, more choice, no yeah. accountability. So I think the thing that they, the bipartisan thing right now, and this is something, Ravi, I always give you an assignment. I want you to write something. I think you should write a piece about the potential and promise of a third party political party's education agenda and hang it on Yang, who ran on math, for one, ran his campaign on math, is probably more pliable and open to ideas that fit across both sides and is more willing to call out the need for uh, the mechanics of like real education, like teaching, learning, math, science, you know, the hard stuff that neither other parties want to talk about. So talk a little bit about the bipartisan commitment to having no accountability, but just more choice and more money. And then talk about the potential of a third party to come up and say, you know, we got a better, you know, agenda than both of you. And it could be Yang. I joined the forward party just (laughs) to see what's going on, just so you know. So I'm desirous of you writing this. Okay, I'll do it. This is what I'll say, you know, before we jump on to the next one, you let me know whether this makes sense or not. I feel like Republicans for a long time didn't have a, a complete comprehensive education agenda. They were focused on foreign affairs and social issues and other things in the economy, small government, that stuff. So Democrats won largely on the basis that the number one constituency in education is actually a, the biggest group of Democrats there are, like teachers and, you know, education people. That's like a very big. So they won on that. And then they also, you know, one on the absence of the Republicans having one and they have one now. And I think the numbers, wouldn't you just say they just right sized? Like now the numbers are where they should have always been. Like it's only a three point difference. It's not like, you know, they, the, the, the real story is that they don't have like a double digit lead anymore. It's not that they've lost everything. It's just like everything else. It's almost 50-50 in everything else, too. Like, we're just that partisan now. Yeah, but there are certain issues that the parties need to be better than the other party on because of their deficits in other areas. So a good example was in the Bush era. Democrats tended to overperform on things like education, healthcare, et cetera, and underperform on things like national security, right? And that was always the tension. Mm-hmm. And actually, they wound up losing a lot of major elections, including Bush's re-election, because national security was the biggest concern of voters, right? And so I think the problem for Democrats heading into this election is there's a risk, and you and I went the hundred rounds on this, but I think there's a risk that this election could have more to do with education than previous elections. Now, how much is up for debate? And obviously, like I would say my my confidence in that position hasn't increased dramatically since the last time we talked in part because DeSantis has underperformed. But I do think like, the Moms for Liberty, ESA voucher story, the whole like connecting the CRT level stuff with the vouchers and all that kind of stuff, that whole world has only strengthened on the Republican side. They're only more emboldened. And I don't think, for instance, vouchers and ESAs have to be a right-wing project. It's a big part of my goal to try to find space for progressives to interact with that policy, as you and I have talked about. But but I just feel like they're that there's a lot of movement, that they're gaining steam on that side. Now, whether they'll gain steam with independence is unclear, but I, I do, I'm bullish on their prospects to gain steam with independence because there isn't a clear counter narrative. Like Democrats, they're not really coming to the table with a vision, whereas the Republicans have a vision, whether it's the right vision or not, is a big debate, but the Democrats don't have that vision, in my opinion. And that's where I th- why I think the Republicans could even continue to gain advantage on this. And they also, the other thing is they don't have to defend full implementation of their policies yet. So they're doing a lot of things that are, they're more ideas today than they are fully formed and in place in policy. Like even things like ESAs and vouchers in a lot of these states are in their embryonic stages and they haven't really had the systemic effects yet that they will in the future. So they don't really have to own those. So I think, and they may say that those systemic effects will help them, but like right now there's no messiness really to to hang around their head. So I don't know. I think they, they, these numbers could get even better for Republicans. We'll see. You know, uh, this is what I think on that last point. I think that, you know, in 2022, there was a little bit of a independent kind of referendum on whether or not the culture war thing for the Republicans was working. And it didn't, actually. Like, I think that's the short story. I think the new research says even more independents are turned off by just the kind of like daily gross kind of hate everything Republican message on education that's divisive. It's really great for the base. 
it's not really great outside of the base. So the Republican base wants more red meat. They want them to like give it to those other groups, just stick it to them. Turns out that some of the research is showing that that's actually not a general election strategy. That's not like a great general election strategy, which is why you might see somebody like Youngkin actually replace DeSantis if DeSantis kind of peters out. If DeSantis peters out, they're going to look for somebody who is more family friendly, telegenic, you know, less kind of angry about everything every day. Well, yeah. One thing, Chris, I know this is the lightning round. One thing I wanted to point out is there, there is a fascinating, if you're a Democrat listening to this, and I would implore Democrats to think about this, when they ask people to choose between two visions of school choice, which we could talk about this separately. I think you and I agree on this. Everybody believes in school choice. They just call certain things choice or not. But option Mm -hmm. one is, quote, creating more options within the public school system for families, such as more baggage schools, career academies, and nonprofit public charter schools. That's option one. Option two is creating a school voucher system that allows parents the option of sending the child to a private school. Funding would be allocated to the parent, yada, 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 according to whatever. So those are the two choices they gave families in, in one question. 68 to 32 in favor of the first choice. Public school choice. Yeah. I've been given sermons on public school choice. Is, is what's really popular, right? And that is a Democrat vision. So when people say Democrats have no vision of education or whatnot, they're pushing the same things that they've always pushed before. These things have always been safe to them, like you know, career academies and pathways and CTE and fully funded schools and sports programs and you know, kind of fully funded is their main thing. There is a problem with the way they, they did that question, though I have to say, I have to point out is it doesn't surprise me that public school choice did better because there wasn't another option. So like there are probably a lot of people there who read into that and they're like, I don't want charters either. They didn't have an option. So they went with the least radical option. <laughs> Cause if you notice those numbers add up to a hundred, <laughs> 68, 32. So yeah. if you're like a ravichite and you don't believe in charters at all, then you don't have an option. So I do think that data is a little suspect. I think the ravichites, the ravage people, are out of tune also with their own people because actually there's general democratic support for these public school options that you just mentioned, magnet schools, charter schools, open schools, many things that are not supported, you know, by kind of the old school paleo liberals within the Democratic Party, right? All right. So moving on to uh, Florida, the Florida Department of Education has approved using conservative nonprofit PragerU's content as a supplemental teaching material in Florida schools. Founded by conservative host Dennis Prager, Prager U is not a real U or university. It's a university within kind of the realm of Trump University. It aims to provide an alternative to left-wing ideology in culture, media, and education. And Florida's the state where woke goes to die and where we're going to do, guys, we're going to do education, not indoctrination. Is that your Florida accent? <laughs> we're just going to do education, guys. Guys, it's we're not doing indoctrination. We're doing education. So um, so what do you think? PragerU, is it education or indoctrination? I feel like Florida's confusing me right now. Let me re- read you a, a transcript from their one of their five-minute history lessons, okay? So two, two kids travel back in time to meet Christopher Columbus, okay? Here's what one of the kids tells Christopher Columbus, quote, well, in our time, we view slavery as being evil and terrible. Christopher Columbus responds, ah, oh, magnifico, that's wonderful. I'm glad humanity has reached such a time. But you said you're from 500 years in the future? How could you come to the 50th, uh, 15th century and judge me by your standards from the 21st century? <laughs> Columbus goes on to tell kids that slavery is no big deal and that being taken as a slave is better than being killed. There's also a, a video a cartoon of Booker T. Washington who tells the time-traveling kids that slavery is bad, but, quote, it's been a reality everywhere in the world. America is one of the first places on earth to outlaw slavery. Yeah, I mean, there's some weird stuff in here. And Prager, the guy who founded it, Dennis Prager, said at a Moms for Liberty conference recently, we are in the mind-changing business. Few groups can say that. This, he's explicitly, you know, acknowledging that they're in the indoctrination business, which, Chris, I may be going senile. I thought that's what DeSantis was against. I think he was, I thought he was against the indoctrination. He's against what they consider to be liberal indoctrination. But obviously, even the way that PragerU frames itself, they say, you know, right up front, they're an alternative to left-wing ideology and culture, media, and education. So obviously, if you're DeSantis, you're, you're for right-wing 
indoctrination. This says so much about the character of Florida and the character of people in politics right now, where he gains points by beating up on anything African-American. So African-American, the college board studies and anything in AP, any of that stuff, he wins points by beating up on Blacks specifically. He wins points on beating up on immigrants, putting them on buses and sending them far away to places where they have no kind of idea where they're going and it's going to be bad for them and he knows it and the pain is part of the stunt, like the pain of the people is part of the stunt because it's, it's you know, just like his stuff with Guantanamo, he's a sociopath. So like he needs to actually see the pain of people and these are good people to beat up. And then, you know, the gay community and trans, of course, these are really good people to beat up because so many people actually are so sick and tired of these same groups of people. So this is like really great entertainment for them. And then on the other side, they need to see him do things like take over a liberal school and replace all of the people and the teachers with uh, Hillsdale College people from a very right-wing college and turn a whole college from liberal indoctrination into conservative indoctrination. And also while he's beating up on the college board, bring in PragerU. So this isn't about him. This is really about the people that are really entertained by this. This is really about like the, the intellect of the electorate, that this is where we are with our politics right now, which you just read is atrocious. And anybody listening to this, I just want you to do your own research. You know how you guys like took ivermectin? I want you to do your own research on this one too. Go and look up Christopher Columbus's real story, right? Spain said that he was a bad guy. He was so bad that they they like arrested him for being so bad. He was so outstandingly bad on a human level to people to make a kid's video about going back in time and having this kind of like quaint conversation with Christopher Columbus. Whatever right-wing people think woke is, this is their version of woke. This is like that bridge too far. This is like just crazy stuff. But anyways, going from one place to another, we're in Florida now, but let's move to California. There's a concerning development in the realm of education research. The California Department of Education threatens to sue two Stafford University education professors to prevent them from testifying in a lawsuit against the department. This dispute has raised concerns about researchers' First Amendment rights and may have implications on education research in this state, in California. Not to let it go unchallenged, the American Civil Liberties Union of Southern California plans to sue the department, and they are arguing that the prohibition of testifying is unconstitutional. I'm not a lawyer, but you are, Ravi. You know, what do you make of a state being able to say to researchers, if you testify in that, you will never work for us or you can't work for us type of thing? Yeah, I agree with the ACLU that this is viewpoint discrimination. They didn't outlaw testifying. They outlawed testifying against the state. That's a big difference. So, <laughs> and it's also, it, it, there's no connection. There's no public interest being served here. I think whether it should be ruled as unconstitutional infringement on, on free speech, but even if it's not, it's just bad policy. Like the, the members of the California legislature and the members of the California Department of Education and the Newsom administration should understand that transparency and honesty are really important for the national debate. And they shouldn't attach strings and say, we're only going to give you data if you tell us exactly what we want to hear. And it makes them look defensive because, you know, who the hell watches these hearings anyway? So although like what would have happened is like, like I happen to agree or, you know, the, the findings of these scholars happens to align with my preconceived notions. Right. So that, you know, I, I generally am happy that they would have been like, I'm happy with their work. But even if you disagree with their work, the best thing to do would be to let them testify and not have a controversy. Now there's a controversy. Now we're all reading about it. We're saying, oh, they're trying <laughs> to shut down the speech. So if you are somebody who feels like people were hyping up pandemic learning loss more than it was, then you're actually, this is counterproductive because now you're making them out to be martyrs and saying, oh, you're, you're so defensive about this pandemic learning loss that you're shutting down somebody from testifying. So I don't know. It's stupid. I don't know what they're doing over there, honestly. It feels very brittle. You know, there's a story that relates to this one in Denver where the school district had to be sued to turn over district information so that a third-party research group could study the effects of the reforms in Denver. And um, you may know uh, <laughs> Parker, who um, participated in this in Colorado, was suing the school district because the information that they used to get about student outcomes 
outcomes, the district was starting to hide or not want to hand over because they were afraid of the outcome of what the study would be. The study would probably prove that Denver had some great outcomes when it came to some of their school reform policies in the city. So the school district really just stonewalled, like we're not going to give you the information and the state backed them up. If if I remember right, I could be having the story wrong, but the, I think the state backed them up and it required a lawsuit to get the data out of them. And in California, kind of the same thing. I think the the root of both of these stories is people not understanding that public data is public data. And the idea that just because you don't like what the story is going to be does not mean that you get to breach the kind of common ideas about public data, right? Like, we believe there should be transparency. There are sunshine laws for a reason. There are reasons that, like, we expect any entity that wants to be considered credible to be open, like with the data. So when you see California or you see Denver, you know, or Colorado kind of saying, nah, we don't like the story that you're going to tell with this, this specific data. So we're going to take really kind of powerful state actions to stop you from having it. Liberals, paleo liberals, people on the left, I would encourage you guys to not go down this path. This is bad government. This is super bad government. You can't be like the right in many ways where you start signing on for kind of like relative ethics. Like, you know, you can't do it. Public information is public. So stop it, California. Stop it. Colorado and anybody else who turns, who thinks that they're going to do this. All right. So we have two stories, two segments here to talk about two things that I think relate to each other. And I don't know if this is going to be immediately obvious of how they relate to each other. So we'll have to talk about it. The first one is we're going to focus on LeBron James's I Promise School in Akron, Ohio. The school has faced media coverage highlighting that eighth graders have not passed the math portion of the state proficiency exam for three years. The foundation attributes this to the impact of COVID-19, which has affected schools nationwide, leading to potential data discrepancy in their reports. Nevertheless, the LeBron James Family Foundation says that they remain committed to supporting at-risk students and their families, specifically through this type of arrangement. It's a charter school without the charter. Well, okay, let's start with that. When this school happened, one charter hater after another was like, my God, like he's doing it the right way. He's not, he doesn't need to do a charter. And I was like, God, that sounds like a charter school to me, but maybe, I don't know, like, like it's like independent of the school district, you know, free to extend the school day. I was like, wow, that sounds like a charter. Now, Chris, now that's underperforming, headlines, Fan Nation, LeBron James's charter school reacts to testing woes. Caroline Moore, a parent activist for parents defending public education. We've seen time and again, all schools, including charter schools, started with the best intentions, yada, yada. So oh, now it's the charter. Back before, when it was just LeBron James, <laughs> it was LeBron James, and it, was, it appeared to be just soaring and this beautiful thing. They didn't call it a charter. But now that it's underperforming as a charter, please don't you buy into this propaganda now. They wanted it to not be a charter. I don't want to own this thing in the charter movement. If it's not a charter, it's not a charter. I'm going to stick with that narrative. Let's hold them to it. But other than that, I do think that this can be turned around. I have not visited the school. Um, I was actually about this week. I was going to send in a request because I know some people down on the ground near, like who are kind of affiliated loosely with this school, and I would love to go see it. And my sense is turnarounds are very hard, but... It's early enough in the school's existence. They have LeBron James. They have his resources. There's potentially some building blocks of a strong culture on the ground here. And I would love to talk to these people about bringing in the right folks to help turn the corner here. Because I, I do think that nobody should be dunking on a school that's not doing well. And, I, you know, LeBron, I have nothing against LeBron James. And I like it when any, you know, whether it's you know, Puff Daddy, whose school teams to be doing decently well, or, or Jalen Rose, or Pitbull, whose schools seem to be decent as well. Like whenever celebrities start schools and, and do it with their own money, we should applaud it and help them do it the best they can. And it's early. Like we've seen enough schools start one way, go the other way. And I don't want to dunk on them. I want to figure out what's going on here and help make this a good school, no matter what we call it. I was going to say, I like this point that you're making because, you know, people tend to dunk on whatever types of schools they hate. So anti-charter people love to dunk on charters whenever charters do something wrong. Right-wing people like to dunk on entire systems anytime they do something wrong. Anti-choice people like to dunk on private schools anytime they do something wrong, right? So like maybe the anti-dunking policy that you're saying here actually makes a lot of sense on this one thing. In 2018, I wrote about 
about this, and it, it was the title was "Let's Talk About King LeBron's Wink Wink." Totally not a charter. Oh, school, I remember this school. piece. Now I remember. Yeah, I remember this. <laughs> <laughs> I remember this. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's funny that now they want to be a charter school. I guess because they're failing. Well, no, like no, the haters want it to be a charter school, right? <laughs> and and in the thing that I yeah. wrote in 2018, I was talking about how celebrated it was by Diane Ravitch and about you know by about the uh, Nicole Hannah Jones and others like crowed about this is doing it the right way. Well, but this is what I want to say to my liberal friends, and I want to say it to the right wing, both of you. This criticism for both of you, but this actually right now is to Democrats, because this is what you get wrong all the time about education. This is the number one thing you get wrong. Yes, money matters. Yes, support matters. Yes, wraparound services can make a difference and matter. None of it matters if you don't know how to teach. And you don't understand teaching and learning instruction, the science of reading, the science of math, the science of how a classroom works. If you focus on everything other than education, all you are doing is saying all these social interventions are more important than an educational intervention. And now we have kids that have free rent, free food, health care, medical benefits, scholarships, all kinds of money. And not a single one is proficient in math in three years, right? Because it turns out if you don't teach math, people don't learn it even if they are well-fed and have a place to live. Like you have kids that can live in a very nice place with all the food in the world and all the hugs and all the everything else. <laughs> but God damn it, if you don't know how to teach, you know, help me out here, man. Am I lying? Like, you know, oh, we didn't, you know, when no one passed math in three years. Look, I'll, I'll give you an analogy. I had to go to the doctor the other day, a specialist. This is the first specialist I've seen in five years. I had a scan. I had to check something out. Thank God it was right. I don't care how much, how good the candy was in the waiting room or how cool the marble was on the floor, or how jovial the doctor was, and he was very chit-chatty. I want to know what the fuck's going on with my skin, and I want to know whether it's okay or not. We're okay. Don't worry about me. But everybody has a role to play, right? There are people who have to feed kids. There are people who have to you know, sew stitches. And then there are people who prepare taxes, and then there are people who teach reading and math. And you and I have talked about this before. I think you're on the same page with me on this one. We put too many things on the shoulders of teachers. Like, let's start with teaching the basics. And as you get better with teaching the basics, then you could pile more and more stuff on. But it, we have to be careful about not piling more and more stuff on people who aren't doing the, the basic stuff right. And I know it's complicated because what does it mean to pile more and more stuff on is a complicated question. And sometimes you can have people work together, which is the next segment, and maybe that can help. Certainly is an idea that makes sense in a very basic way. But the problem with the rhetoric often, though, and Jonathan Chait had a really good piece in New York Magazine about this, is people often say schools need to solve poverty. And I think that's the wrong way to do it. They need to play their part in solving poverty. But there's many things that a, a strong system of government and civil society needs to do where we, we all are like an orchestra and the school is a very prominent, I would say the most important part of the orchestra, but the other people need to be playing their notes too. And so I don't know, that's just my opinion. Cause it's hard to run schools. Look, LeBron James, like he's got a lot of money, a lot of, like a, a lot of buy-in in that neighborhood. There's a lot of fanfare. Like you'd imagine he could pay people, whatever they want, attract whoever he wants to do that school. And they're still having a tough go at it. Like this stuff is really hard. He's working directly with a public district. He is injecting a ton of money. He is making sure that students have everything that they need and parents have everything that they need and that the communities are actually better off so that the kids can learn when they get there. It kind of mirrors Biden putting $190 billion into the schools with no strings attached, just like showering money on all the schools. Cool. Money does matter. It's why rich neighborhoods and rich schools or whatnot are rich, because money does matter. Sure. But... But, and this is the very big but, I don't know when Democrats learn their lesson on this one. Because even when they succeed wildly, they have a president who got in and did everything that they thought they should do. He showered the schools with money. And now we're talking about kids having pandemic learning loss that actually puts them back to what year? Like 19 something, <laughs> right? Like, like, you know, the kids are scoring today what they scored over a decade ago or more. So yeah, two things can be true. Like money does matter. 
And so does teaching and learning and science and those things. And it turns out, actually, the Democrats have always been against this. I think, number one, because their number one constituency are the employees of school districts, not the children. So the number one constituency of the Democratic Party isn't just the teachers and the workers in the building. That's the largest labor group in the United States now. So, of course, this is why Democrats love early childhood education and they love talking about college right? Especially elite Democrats, because elite Democrats only see the world in those two things. Early ed is for the poor people and college is for, of course, all of us. Like college is, of course, for the elites. Why don't they talk about K-12? Tell me why they don't ever mess with that. I think it's even worse than the Democrats in their, I used to think their constituency was the employees. I actually think now it's just the leadership of the unions. Like, for example, why why in New York City are we on the cusp of spending a million dollars a classroom Yet teachers aren't making, you know, they should be making a quarter of a million dollars in that scenario. Why not? Well, there's an instructive moment in New York, and I'm doing a whole episode on this, where the city and the unions got together to sell out municipal employees, including my mother, who works at a city hospital. Uh, and why? Uh, and what they what did they do? They took this long-held promise that employees would get a certain Cadillac health care plan, and they basically said, you know what? You're not going to get that health care plan anymore. We're going to put you on this crappier health care plan. And then they pocketed the difference and put into a slush fund that they get to spend. And these are union employees like my mother who are getting sold out, right? And this is what I think teachers deal with all the time. Because I know we have teacher listeners who are like, yeah, like it's complicated. Like I am not the union leadership. The union leadership often wants more resources for the union. They often want more members. And and whenever faced with a choice between more members or taking care of their existing members better, they go for more members. And to me, this means that there's an opening to talk to members of the union, because I think there's a version of the unions that if we get this right, the unions fight for, you know, the right kind of stuff that even if you're a critic of the way unions have operated until now, teachers in New York should be making a quarter of a million dollars a year. Like, it, and actually, that's not the fault of, like, ed reformers that they don't make a quarter of a million dollars. It's the fault of their own union leadership. Where's this money going? Like, why are we adding more administrative staff? Why are we adding to headcount? Why are we adding, like, why are we doing things like class size reductions and not giving more money to the teachers? So, I don't know. I'll get off my, my soapbox. But. So, the third rail that you just hit on is that class size is a really good example of this issue where parents believe as much as school staff do that smaller classrooms are better. And to tell you the truth, like I'm a guy who has seen any rational data about this that might even contradict it. But as a parent, I just, it just, it's common sense that smaller classrooms are better for kids, like fewer kids in the classroom. Like, you know, my kids are in a classroom where they have two or three mainstream kids and it does change how much they can cover, like how much a teacher can cover in a year or whatnot. So the the small class size is one of those losers for reformers and definitely a win for parents and the union's who are in, you know, in collaboration on those type of things. That's why it's hard to talk about this stuff. Like, you know, you guys shifted the money away from teachers and you hired more teachers so you can have smaller class sizes. Oop, you just lost. <laughs> you just lost that whole thing. Like, you know, you were doing good until you got to the class size part. You know? <laughs> I know we're not talking about it, but I, I, I think it's a smart move by the unions because I don't think they were doing class size reductions in New York City because they cared about the data. The data was very mixed and the price tag was massive. They did it because they got more members out of it. That's my cynical view on why they did that. That's very cynical. And I do not believe that. This is, this is, this is the more charitable version of what you just said. I don't think they did it because it just gets them more members. I think they did it because their members, that's like one of their number one wish list items is to have fewer kids in their classroom. Like if you are listening to teachers, rank and file teachers who have more than 30 kids or 32 or 33 or 35, there was a school in Minneapolis that had something like 42 and there were kids sitting on the floor in one of the best high schools in the city. If you talk to those educators, it's almost like what's going to rise to the top first? Not, it's not even paid. 42 is already illegal in New York. Like the numbers were marginal change with a huge price tag. And this was at the same time that they rejected the state leadership. They rejected the expansion of high power tutoring, like even a very modest expansion of it, in part because the association of school superintendents didn't like it, which is a whole other story. I mean, and look at what we just did, Ravi. We just talked a lot about you know, unions and money and classrooms and students and small class sizes, blah, 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 blah. 
And what was missing from that, we were all talking about democratic politics. That's what we were talking about, their agenda on education. And while we were having that conversation, we weren't saying anything about the fact that teachers don't know how to teach. We weren't saying anything about the fact that the institutions that turn out teachers every year actually turn out a bumper crop every year of teachers who, when they are surveyed, say they didn't feel prepared to actually teach after their programs. They say this when you survey them. They say this. I spent money. I went to this institution. I paid money to student teach, as a matter of fact, out of my own pocket. Like They got free labor out of me, and I still was not prepared to teach after all of that. I learned more in my first two years or three years on the job than I did in prep. That's all stuff that actually, this is the education agenda. This is what we're talking about, teaching and learning, right? I hate to be a, beat a dead horse, but it's so easy to go down that political path of talking about all those things. What this, this segment was about, though, is really about like the Biden thing and the LeBron James thing is you can do the, the liberal leftist wish list of things, which I agree with. I actually want fully fed kids. I want free health care for all of them. I want maternal health care for all of them. I want them to drink lead-free water. I want them to have a place to live every night that is safe and clean and doesn't have bullets coming through the window. I want for them the type of life that I want for my kids who I put to bed every night knowing that they are fairly privileged. That's what I want for every child. It's the only reason you and I are talking right now. It's the only reason why I like am a lifelong advocate and activist is because I want every kid to have that. So yes, you got me out of that, all right? But you can have all of that and still not be teaching, right? And the problem with that is you're just now making happy serfs in the future. You're just making them well-fed, happy serfs because if you come out of 12th grade not having learned a certain set of things, your chances of being in poverty and continuing poverty are pretty high, right? So it is not compassionate or charitable to just do a LeBron thing, like, let's just give you a ton of money and have no care or concern about what the outcomes are going to be. Kids who can't do math, that's like a poverty continuing education program. That is not a poverty ending program. I think like in LeBron's defense, I don't think LeBron didn't care about outcomes. I think he was doing, I think my, my sense is he did the best he could based on what he knew about what makes a good school or not, you know? And I think like he, like anybody, he's going to learn from this experience and I hope he comes out the other side. I, I will have infinitely more respect for LeBron James than some other billionaires that I will not name who have invested in things that actually do work. And then when the politics got bad, they backed out. You know who you are. <laughs> one of you is in a, it has one of you has gotten yourself in the middle of a cage fight. I won't go too far in there. I don't want to get you in trouble, Chris. But there are some people out there who have invested in some things that actually do really work. And when things got difficult, they backed out of them. I I respect anybody who learns. Look, we all learn. Like I wouldn't start the same school I started back in 2010, and I imagine LeBron wouldn't start the same school he did a few years ago. Like it's you learn from these things. Like, and anybody who's been in the middle of school trying to serve kids who are coming with major challenges and you have high expectations, you're going to be disappointed. And the key, the differences are between the people who stick with it and, and try to do their best, and those who get despondent or overcorrect. And I, and I suspect there are, there are good things going on at that school that they could build on. I, I, I reject your, your generosity on this one point. I'm just going to say I reject you giving LeBron all this credit. Let me read you from an article that talks about LeBron's son. Both of LeBron James's sons are moving on from Sierra Canyon. Bryce James, 15, is transferring to Campbell Hall next season, according to ESPN. Both are private institutions in Southern California, about nine miles apart. Bryce's new high school is located in Studio City, California, Sierra Canyon, and it's in Chatsworth. James will still be a private school student with the price tag, the tuition each year being $50,000 per year. Well, why does that matter? He's not anti-private school. He went to private school. No, you're saying you just think he was trying to make a school how he knows it can be. Like, you know, that's that's to his his credit. That's what it can be. Yeah, I, I think this is him. I think this is him thinking, look, LeBron James <laughs> didn't go to college. He, he spent his, his key years trying to be the best basketball player he could be. Like, I don't think... Like LeBron, he didn't go to the Building Excellence Schools Fellowship like I did. He hasn't been like he hasn't spent his time touring schools like you have. The guy probably has. He probably knows as much about schools as I know about basketball. And so you put me in charge of the Los Angeles Lakers. They would be the worst basketball team in the NBA, no matter who you put on that team. So like to, to him, it's like it's it's a proficiency gap. Even though he sends his kids, like he he I imagine like looked at the schools he sent his kids to and was like all right, like, let's try to do the best we can to do this. And he hasn't gotten it right yet. 
I'm sure over time the school will get better if he sticks with it. Like I hope he doesn't do what some people do, which is ignore it or try to minimize it as a PR disaster. Let's actually turn the school around and make it great. LeBron James, you have been a family man that has stuck with your family. You have been a smart businessman. You have been an outstanding athlete, and you are a great philanthropist. You have an open invitation to come to the Citizens Stewart Show anytime that you want for come us on. to discuss come this. On, and I appreciate what you are doing in Akron and in Ohio. I just want to say that the one missing key ingredient of all of these plans is a firm focus on teaching and learning and making sure that those things are right. Because if those are wrong, everything else is wrong. So moving on, we're going to turn our attention to Chicago. In our final segment, we're going to talk about Chicago's Sustainable Community Schools Program is a program in Chicago that has been going on for a little period of time. The Brighton Park Elementary and Sustainable Community Schools has successfully implemented a robust summer program with various engaging activities for students and parents, including cooking classes, boxing classes, and arts and crafts. The new mayor, Mayor uh, Brandon Johnson and his transition team plan to expand this program as to as many as 200 of the district's 500 schools. So this is going to be a big community schools push, sustainable community school push. It's not going to be cheap. It's going to be pretty expensive to do it. It's going to provide crucial after school programs, family engagement opportunities, mental health support. But evaluations of the program have been generally positive, but, you know, it faces some challenges, you know, challenges with aligning with nonprofits and, you know, getting stuff the right way. What do you think, Ravi? This is where these two things collide. It's a lot like the last topic we just talked about, right? There's a symmetry between this and the class size reductions, because often the data is viewed at in isolation. Is this good or bad? Like Matt, uh, our friend Matt Barnum, or my friend, I don't know if he's your friend, uh, wrote a piece that looked at this data in 2018, and he was basically evaluating the effects. And a lot of the studies, not all of them, but a lot of them look at it in isolation, not saying this is how much it costs relative to what other things cost that we could do with this money. And then there's also a separate issue, which is, do we have the money, <laughs> right? Like these are very important things. And like, they must have a money tree somewhere there in Chicago, because when I looked at the Chicago fiscal situation, I was like, when I was reading this article, I was like, are they better than I thought they were fiscally? And then I looked at it and I was like, no, no, they're actually just as bad as I remembered it being. So the district's own report last fall noted that there is a huge cost shift happening in, in part due to a bunch of things, including the fact that $28 billion in COVID relief money runs out in a year. And there's also the mayoral control transition to the elected school board is creating all sorts of issues. And the own district's report described the district's financial outlook as, quote, fragile and warned of a $628 million deficit by 2026. That's $628 million in a $9.5 billion budget. That's a lot. That's like 6% of, of the budget. And that's a deficit. So my question to Chicago is, are you baking this in? What are you cutting in order to do this? What are the trade-offs? What other things did you evaluate? Like, did you look at? Uh, because you are in the tough trade-offs business right now. And what are the tough trade-offs? Of course I got to do. want a kid who have a dentist in their school and like the best possible wraparound services, et cetera. Are we finding efficient ways to have people work together? What if, what if this is not an add-on? What if this is pulling from other programs? Can we find ways to actually make schools more efficient and more cost-effective by bringing in other dollars that are being spent and not coordinated? Well, all great. I suspect that's not exactly what's going on here, the way that it's being framed. So I'm a little concerned that they can't afford this. So would you be okay with them finding a way to afford it if it was producing outcomes? Yes, 100%. Like, well, producing outcomes relative to the alternative that you would do with that money, Yeah. right? Like, there are, like I would want a sober analysis of, okay, here are four things we've tried, and they have this data. Here's what we've done with high-powered tutoring. Here's what we've done with extending the school day. Here's what we've done by making smaller class sizes. Yeah, and then put it all together. Here's what we get by paying teachers more. And here's the best available evidence that we can. And we can't do all those mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. Like, they can't. I wish they could. They cannot. So let's see what we could do with that. Like, they don't have the power of the purse the way that a lot of states do. And even states are limited often, and their ability to borrow is lower than the federal government. Well, this is me trying to be fair to all sides. So chalkbeat analysis showed that through the turbulent past few years, this group of schools, 
meaning these community schools, saw an uptick in graduation. They saw attendance dip, though. But, you know, generally these schools have done better. These 20 campuses have done better than the district-wide schools. Studies nationally have shown promising gains in attendance, academics, and students' sense of belonging at school as part of their kind of thing. This is their selling point. So if it costs a little bit more money, but it's getting better results than the district schools, I mean, what's the cost of doing worse? Like, What's the cost of those? So let's say that these schools, let's say there's 20 of them, are doing better than the 100 schools. The cost of the 100 schools is pretty damn high because failure is like pretty expensive, right? So what would you say you need to see like the what the traditional schools are doing and this variable of the community schools and maybe a few other things like maybe how are the magnets doing or how the charters are doing or something like that yeah i would i would come up with some metric i'm sure certain districts do this of like a, like a cpi like cost per improvement right so it's like like i would say i would roll up like wh- whatever we all get in a room and we all decide what does it mean to improve a child's odds in life like test scores attendance college acceptance and complete whatever you got. Right. And say, all right, like every study we do is going to be attached to that data in some way or another, every study we evaluate. And like, we, we use a statistical measure and say, all right, this is what we know about community schools. This is what we know about smaller tests, uh, class sizes, et cetera. And this is what the CPI on that is. And actually the CPI is low on high dosage tutoring, for example. So let's actually invest more in that because the cost per the equivalent improvement is much lower than the cost for community schools, right? That That's what I'd want to see. It's very technocratic of me, but I ho- hope that would be persuasive to somebody like you because you like the data, right? Like let's let's create data and let's continue let's let's engage Raj Chetty and all the best minds we've got in in the world of data science and continually refine this model to say, all right, what are the programs that have the best CPI or whatever we want to call it in education? You know, that's what I would want to see. I'm looking at a stat here that contradicts something that I think I just said. So let me kind of correct the record if I said this. <laughs> it's okay, so yeah. It says enrollment <laughs> at Chicago Sustainable Community Schools has declined at a slightly higher rate than the other schools amid declines. So the whole district has, for, well, let me back, let me back <laughs> all the way up. Little known fact, Chicago has lost something like 150,000 black people right? Like black families moving out of the city, like 150,000. That's a lot of families to just pick up and leave out of a city. But so that means that the whole district is going to deal with some declines, but the declines actually aren't even. The community schools actually had a, a sharper decline than the regular schools. Help me explain that one. Well, well, I want to be fair to them. I would need to look at this more. I flagged that too, and I didn't want to beat you over the head with it because it could be that those schools are they were already picked because they're the ones that were struggling the mm-hmm, most. And mm-hmm. like, you know, I want to be fair to that. I don't, I, I haven't looked through enough of the data to be able to make that point. Like, obviously that's eyebrow raising, but my look at this is the data is mixed, but positive on community schools. It's not like jaw droppingly amazing the way that tutoring data is, for example, but like, look, like bottom line in a perfect world, we're doing this. We don't live in a perfect world. So the, the thing that worries me about community schools, I bet, bet listeners are listening to be like, well, why are you just like your disposition inherently a little bit more skeptical about these and other things? The reason is the, po- whenever the politics is easy, mm-hmm. I'm like, hmm, mm-hmm. all right, <laughs> let me be a little bit hard on you. Cause like saying you're for community schools is like being like you're for vanilla ice cream, Kittens. right? Like it's, it's the easiest <laughs> thing in the world to be for. Yeah. yeah. So I just want to be a little hard on you, not cause I don't want community schools. Like I would have loved, honestly, like when neighbor, I forget what the name of the organization is, communities in schools or whatever. I would have loved for them to come to yeah. my school. Like I would have loved for them to, to do tax preparation and mental health counseling. Like we, I want more resources for my kids. It makes our jobs easier when done well. Although some people like if you look at some of this, there there are complaints about certain versions of this program, lack of coordination, et cetera, is an issue. And I know that the people who do this well have been refining their model over time to to make it easier on schools, et cetera. But I don't know. That's why that's where my skepticism mm-hmm. comes in. It's not because I'm inherently skeptic skeptical of communities and schools, but because it's so easy to be for that we have to give them a little bit of a hard time. I'm going to tell you a secret. This is a secret. This is totally secret to you and the audience and everybody else. It's a secret that the Democrats knew for years. And it's the secret to the success of the new uh, Republican insurgency. And it's the reason why people like me are failing. I put myself in kind of a technocratic camp. I believe systems make a difference. I believe that the technical aspects of teaching are actually the focus. That's where you should focus your attention. I don't think that NCLB and a 
you know, a bunch of other technocratic things were bad. And even though the conventional wisdom now is like, you know, Common Core was bad and NCLB was bad or whatnot, I just feel like a crazy person because I'm like, you know, you guys are saying that all that stuff was bad and then you go off to talk about fluffy shit and it drives me absolutely batty, yeah. right? Like, like no data, let's Amen. have a data vacation, you know, Amen. like no teaching, you know, it's just a hug. But this is what the Democrats know as a secret and the Republicans just learned it in the last few years and it's how they're selling choice. They paint you a vision of what every parent would want for their kids, a therapeutic, comforting, joyful, happy learning experience where kids are jumping up and down and they're like eating great food and it's fresh and it's healthy and they have playtime and recess and open air and they're all like, <laughs> they're growing their own they're vegetables, their own Chris. vegetables. Somehow they're, they're harvesting honey from the but bees. But somehow they're, the parents are leaving. <laughs> the parents are leaving these schools in greater numbers. Yes, it's the greatest school The Republicans ever, used you know? to side with the technocrats. The Republicans used to be like all about the technocratic stuff, the accountability, the like, you know, what you just yeah. said, high dosage tutoring. Yeah. That is a very technocratic thing to say, right? That is a that is that is not like loving. That's like just put inject high yeah. doses tutoring into my veins. <laughs> and I'm for it, but I'm a technocrat in this one way. Like I'm also kind of like a Rousseauist. I believe in the pretty picture that these other guys are are painting. But listen, Republicans started succeeding when they got off of the technocratic stuff and started saying, we'll just give you money to take your kids to SeaWorld and to get trampolines yeah. and to have, oh, yeah. you know, horse riding. And it'll just be like freedom, horse riding, educational freedom. You'll be dumb as hell. <laughs> I think we lost Chris in his mid-rant. <laughs> you got to keep that in. All right, well, okay, listeners, we we lost Chris. I think Betsy DeVos might have been listening and cut off his mic. Chris, okay, you're back. Chris is back. Chris, wait, actually, mid-rant, I'm going to give it to you, final word to send us off on. So, yeah, ranting and raving and screaming. The one thing that I was trying to just hit on is that the secret is that you have to sell anything that you sell with a pretty picture. And then you have to feel the picture. You have to, like, feel the the therapeutic nature of the school's and like how happy the kids will be. And if you focus on just that, all the other stuff won't matter. The technocratic stuff won't matter. It won't matter if they're like, if they can read. So right now the Democrats and the Republicans are selling you a vision that doesn't require the outcomes to be there. Like it's just freedom. It's just like, you know, happiness and joy and blah, 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 all that stuff. Anyways, we will see how that works out. I'm not really optimistic that that's the way to go, but it's what we're doing. Listen, folks, we love it that you guys listen to the show and you send us feedback every week. And I want to tell you, like I do every week, how to send us feedback because we love to hear from you. The first way is that you can leave us a voicemail at 321-213-9171. And the second way is you can send us an email at citizenstuartshow at thebranchmedia.org. I'll say that again, citizenstuartshow at thebranchmedia.org. We just love to hear from you. And either way you can do it, Send us your messages. This has been another episode of The Citizen Stewart Show, and we love that you guys listen. Have a great day. The Citizen Stewart Show is a production of the Branch Media Podcast Network. I'm Chris Citizen Stewart. You can follow me at Citizen Stewart. You can follow Ravi at Ravi M. Gupta. You can follow all of the Branch's podcasts at The Branch Media on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And check out our website at thebranchmedia.org. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review, give us a five-star rating, and subscribe to the show so you can join us every Tuesday for more of The Citizen Stewart Show. 